You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and a big warm welcome back to season three of PGAP. Michael Bayless is my name. Rethinking endless growth on a finite planet is my game. If you are new to PGAP, what better way to start your 2022 as we enter the third year of the Decade of Consequence? Exciting times. A big warm welcome to the new year in all senses of the word. The global human impact on the planet is bigger than it was last year, and the planet has again warmed up in response. No surprises there, and the fact that the new year follows on from a COP26, every bit as tepid and disappointing as all the other bad cops, is even less of a surprise. It is going to be both bracing and anticipating to see what will happen over the next 12 months. As world economies are falling back on the usual stalwarts of construction and property speculation to kickstart their COVID-induced stagnations, there are at the same time dwindling global supplies of building materials and including urea, apparently an essential component of diesel. Humanity is so divided over the response to COVID and the vaccines have become the new us and them issue of the moment that is tearing us apart faster than love could ever tear apart Joy Division. That for once, it almost doesn't seem to be taboo to be talking about population anymore, so yay, swings and roundabouts. Anywho, this podcast is supposed to be inspiring you, not projecting my existential dread upon you. Well, that's what my therapist told me anyway. And thus, what better way to kick off season three than the walking and talking manifestation of pure inspiration and leadership himself, Joshua Spodek. New York-based Joshua Spodek is a four-time TEDx speaker, a number one bestseller author on coaching and leadership, and he has been interviewed on every major American network, holds a PhD in astrophysics as you do, and if that weren't enough, is a host of the award-winning podcast, This Sustainable Life. On his off time from being a walking embodiment of success, Joshua instead runs in marathons, swims the Hudson River, and has completed 175,000 burpees over his lifetime. So how did I find such a person? Ultimately, some things in life will remain a happy mystery. However, Joshua initially entered my field of consciousness on a permanent basis when I heard the broadcast of an interview with one of my colleagues from Sustainable Population Australia. Dr Jane O'Sullivan was interviewed on a discussion paper she had then recently authored on behalf of SPA. Silver Tsunami or Silver Lining? Why We Should Not Fear an Aging Population? Joshua being relatively new to camp population, but a stalwart of the degrowth scene, he had a very positive conversation with Jane around population demography as seen through the degrowth lens, and it was a very educational experience for all. I looked up on Joshua following the podcast to find out more about him. I was impressed and taken not only by his professional successes, but also his dedication to challenging himself within his own personal life. For example, Joshua is a dedicated vegan who has not bought food in packaging for many years. He has also freed himself from airplane transport, and these days his personal yearly carbon emissions are down to two tonnes per year or below, depending on the calculator used. 
His broader political views also incorporate limits of growth and degrowth. So the more I got to read about Joshua, the more I started to think I'd hit a gold mine here. Someone hell-bent on minimising his own per capita consumption while simultaneously being unafraid to be outspoken on population. <laughs> you know, actually doing both instead of picking a side and hating the people who pick the other arbitrary side like the rest of us. He is a strong advocate for personal change, but is also all too aware that the world isn't going to be saved by one person eating vegan or turning off the lights at night without a systemic change toward degrowth. However, in Joshua's own words, systemic change begins with personal transformation, and we have to change ourselves if we expect others to change. He is a huge advocate of applying leadership and coaching principles in the environmental movements and furthermore to lead others through showing up by example. And if holding a TEDx talk is any measure of success, and well it is to me, then Joshua has demonstrated big wins. I could go on, but I'm starting to put words in Joshua's mouth now. Needless to say, I contacted Joshua to take part on PGAP and was over the moon when he actually said yes. I hope you enjoy the following conversation with Joshua Spodek, host of this Sustainable Life podcast, as much as I did. Welcome back to PGAP. I am absolutely honoured to be talking to Joshua Spodek. Um, now, Joshua, you interviewed one of my colleagues, Jane O'Sullivan, uh, not too long ago, so it's an absolute honour to be turning the tables around. So how are you today? Very good. Looking forward to this. Now, Joshua, you have an award-winning podcast, The Sustainable Life, uh, books with rave reviews, e.g. Leadership Step by Step, and with at least three TEDx talks under your belt. Now, I'm not sure what's more impressive out of that or the 175,000 burpees you completed since 2011. Uh, as your achievements are very broad, I'm actually not sure if it's possible to provide us with a concise executive summary of what you do and your key passions, but give it a whirl. I wish the listeners could see me smiling the way you put about the burpees. It's uh, that's certainly actually not just fitness, but fitness that's accessible to anyone. Accessibility is very important to me. I don't want to do things that not just anyone can do. So, you know, they have no equipment necessary. You can do it in any weather. If I go back over my life, if I go back to the very beginning, you know, I, I grew up kind of nerdy. Uh, I got a PhD in physics, fairly nerdy place to go but then left academia to start my first company. My company did well at the beginning. This is the late 90s, early 2000s. And then we had, there was a recession and 9-11 and, and we had our ups and downs and I got squeezed out by the investors. That led me to eventually business school. Business school is where I first learned that there were classes in leadership. And I didn't know that you could learn what I would now say social and emotional skills. So I was surprised at that. When I left business school, I started a couple companies here and there, but in the background and then in the foreground came this interest in leadership. I didn't know that I could change my, my identity, my, my sense of self, and influence others that way. If you'd met me 10, 15 years ago, I was going around New York. Uh, my goal was to start a new school for leadership and to teach that in more project-based learning, more experiential than reading and writing case studies and uh, reading and writing papers. And 
a couple things happened. Oh, I guess NYU hired me to teach with NYU, and I started working with them to work on some leadership courses and entrepreneurship courses there. And then something happened that I did not expect to be important in any way. Uh, if you had asked me at the time, you know, I knew about the environment, I knew about sea level rise since as long as I can remember. Uh, I knew about pollution as long as I could remember. I didn't really act too much on it. You know, I was vegetarian, uh, didn't really do a whole lot. I felt like only governments could really make the change on the scale that was necessary or corporations. And then this thing I did, not intending it for to go anywhere, I challenged myself to see if I could go for a week without buying any packaged food. And my goal was, you know, I wasn't trying to fix the world. I was just trying to take responsibility for my particular bunch of garbage. At first, I thought that it would be impossible. And what would be the point anyway? Living in Manhattan, I got great food around. Why not get restaurant food and why not get pre-prepared food? So what I tell most of the world is I talk about the, the feat that I went two and a half weeks and then, you know, it was the first time I ever boiled beans on the stove because I could buy them from the bulk section in, in a bag that I carried with me. Actually, I should go to this moment that was a pretty key moment when I, going to the store after deciding to do this and I wasn't sure if I could make it. And I just, through force of habit, went to the aisles where I would normally go. And I'm standing at an aisle looking at the shelf where I would normally buy stuff and there's stuff in boxes and cans and jars. And I'm thinking, I'm not getting this. What do I do? Despite having all these Ivy League degrees, nothing had prepared me for how to eat without polluting other people's worlds. And I felt helpless and I felt confused and frustrated. If you want details, I can tell you details. But, you know, of course, I look over and I see there's a produce aisle and I could buy produce, vegetables and, and fruit, and I could get beans, dried beans. I knew they were in the bulk section, but I'd never bought them before. So I didn't know how to cook them. I mean, I knew in principle to boil them. So I had to figure that out. The stuff I tell the rest of the world is that now it's been seven, eight years since then. And it takes me, it used to take me one week to fill up a little garbage, then two weeks, then once every month, once every three months, once every six months. So now 2019 was the last time I emptied my garbage. It's I think this load, I won't fill it till 2022. So it'll be two calendar years without emptying one load of garbage in my house. But that's not the key thing. It's the emotional, mental experience that was a big thing. Going from thinking it would be deprivation and sacrifice to finding out that it was really joyful and more delicious, connecting me with my family more. So that led to a whole bunch of other shifts of then challenging myself to go for a year without flying, which I thought was going to be even harder and was also the same magnitude of flip that it was that much more rewarding. I found more control over my career more adventure, more cuisine and cultural exchange, exactly the opposite of my expectations. So I started bringing leadership to the environment. I connected these two great passions of mine, science, nature, and leadership, because I felt like there's a lot of people telling people what to do, spreading facts and figures, but no one making it enjoyable. No one's saying, you're gonna like this. You're gonna wish you had started earlier, speaking from personal experience. So I started trying to figure out how to get that message out. I started the podcast. I think I'll start my fourth year in, in November. I developed this technique to influence one person at a time to go from expecting deprivation and sacrifice to acting and finding joy from intrinsic motivation. And the podcast is to get, by working with leaders of communities, people who are very influential, my strategy is to influence communities through influencing important people. My goal is to get people like Oprah and LeBron uh, as well as CEOs. And if you look at the guests on my podcast, it's people like that. Uh, that was a long answer. It's been a very personal journey, contrary to my expectations, but very full of joy and discovery and fun and community where I expected deprivation and sacrifice. And that was one of the 
the key things that I got personally from having a look at your um, TEDx talks and from whatever I have seen of them, my observation is that you are a person of high integrity who does follow your moral, moral compass regardless of the changes it causes in your life. Um, now, I just want to reflect that on a recent episode on PGAP, I talked with Ted Trainer from the Simplicity Institute, and we discussed the fears that many have with a voluntary simplicity or even economic degrowth that will lead to lives of sacrifice and deprivation. I was impressed by contrast by your way of turning this so-called sacrifice around, which led to a more rich life experience. Um, you know, I've experienced myself in going vegan. Yes, you lose cow's milk, but it opens up the possibility of soy, almond, cashew, oat, even hemp milk. Perhaps you could explore this with the journeys of um, either giving up flying or giving meat. I love both stories. Um, and what you gained instead of lost. Yeah, you said a lot there. There's a lot of things I could talk about there. I mean, there's things like role model. Every time that I do something, I find someone who's done it before me. And then I start switching to feeling like, oh, this isn't so hard. There's people who do it. I'm not the first one to do it. One big thing, for example, with, with what I drink, when I first stopped eating meat, I drank a lot more milk and dairy and eggs, but then gradually lowered them as well. I learned that for most of human existence, so humans have been human homo sapiens for something like 300,000 years. And up until agriculture, humans drank only water for most of our existence. Now in this country, we view anything less than like 19 brands of water as an encroachment of our freedom. So I'm not saying people shouldn't drink whatever beverages, but in my personal experience, water tastes much better now. Now, as it happens, I was getting a lot of soy milk and, um, and various different nut milks, but I couldn't deal with the packaging. Once I stopped the packaging, I, I didn't, I stopped that. Get rid of review about soy milk makers. I went on Craigslist, bought a used uh, soy milk maker for 15 bucks. And now I can get dried soybeans, soak them overnight, put them in there, and I get soy milk. I mean, it makes all kind of nut milks, but as it turns out, that's the one that I like the most. Once I commit to doing something, there's a transition period. This happens every single time. I examine my values. I think, is this going to kill me? No. Is it going to be hard? Maybe. But the harder it is, the more I've come to expect that when I commit, I simply solve the problems as they come. What do I do about not having X, not having Y? And it always works out. It works out every single time. And in fact, I've come to expect that when I do it, I will enjoy it more. So not flying, you know, right off the bat, I had to not deliver on two different conferences I was scheduled to speak at, or one I was scheduled to speak at and one that I was planning in Europe and I couldn't do it. Okay, I couldn't do those, but I found closer ones. And every single time I live by my values, I find that what I replace it with, it's not what I give up, it's what I replace it with, turns out to be more by my values. And ipso facto, like what it means to live by your values is a better life. Value is like what's better, what's worse. When you choose what's better for you, it's better. It may seem like it's gonna be hard, but every single time it works out. I mean, meat or packaged stuff, like there's not enough money in the world for me to eat a Twinkie. You know, I have this memory of the first time I ate a Twinkie. It was, I was a kid, it was at someone else's house because my parents wouldn't buy them. And I ate a Twinkie and I was like, oh, you know, the cellophane and the smell of, now I'd say it was a greasy smell and my teeth piercing through the, the I don't know what you call it, the sponginess of the, of the cake and the cool cream, which would be like C-R-E-M-E because -E, it's not really cream. I ate one and then I ate the box. <laughs> <laughs> and for my entire life as an adult, 
I, I'm pointing now to my fridge over there and I always had ice cream in the freezer and I'm pointing to my cupboard and there was always pretzels and Doritos, always. And when I said no packaging, that was out. And now apples taste sweeter than ice cream ever did. Broccoli tastes better than Doritos ever did. And there's no way I could have imagined that. There's no feeling in me of sacrifice. I wish I'd changed earlier. Now, I've just got this one question that's popped into my head. Like, firstly, Australia doesn't actually have Twinkies, but I think we all know what they are. <laughs> I think our equivalent, I don't know, might be Oreos. That's something that USA and Australia both have um, as a way of comparison. But oh, I'm sorry, Fiona. I, I'm, I have to interrupt here. I did love Vegemite. <laughs> and I believe that that is an Australian thing. And Marmite as well. So uh, I have not gotten that in a long, long time. But oh, you know, I forgot to mention, I'm sorry, I'm going to go on with my interruption. And I apologize. Another thing that keeps happening is community. And my friend was telling me about how he and his son are brewing beer. And he was saying, you got to try some of this beer. I was like, great, I'll try it. I'd love to try it. And then I said, wait a minute, do you have kind of a sludge that comes off of that? And he goes, yeah. And so I'm going to make with him, I'm going to make Vegemite from scratch. And we're going to connect more. And this keeps happening. So every time when I want to get something, it pops out of community always. It, I can't explain how much this happens, but it keeps happening. Community, connection, family, things like that always save the day. Well, it's great to meet a non-Australian who likes Vegemite. I never thought that would happen, but here we go. You are a type of person that can record the number of burpees that you can do so maybe challenging yourself to seemingly difficult things did you find itself that it's easy for you or for others who may not have the dedication to record the numbers of burpees they do or swim the hudson river or is it is there something that you could say during your coaching that helps people perhaps with different minds be able to go through the similar journey of challenges personal challenges that you do there's a bunch of different challenges. And let's take the burpees, for example. A lot of people say, you must have so much dedication to do so many burpees. But it, it's actually the opposite. That's like saying Arnold Schwarzenegger must have been so strong to go to the gym. He went to the gym and that built his muscles. I do these and that gives me the dedication. If I, I watched so much TV growing up that if I didn't have some structure, I would fall apart. So I do it to make up for what I'm lacking or to build up what, I'm, what I would otherwise lack in, and improve my life. So I don't record the number of burpees so much as I do, a, I have a very set routine so that I don't have to remember it. Sorry, if there's a little beeping, it's because my pressure cooker just finished and my stew is gonna be ready. <laughs> uh, oh no, this is, this is ambience, you know, a demonstration of your life, yeah. <laughs> the famous no packaging vegan stew. There's a book, uh, Getting Things Done, by a guy named David Allen. And I met him once. The book was really popular something 15 years ago. And when I met him, I said, you know, I read your book, it's about productivity, and it didn't really make me more productive. And he said, yeah, the publisher put the word productive on the cover because that sells books, but really what the book is about is mental freedom. If you have something on your mind, like if you're trying to do a task, but you know that later on you have to do this other task and you're, you're kind of thinking about the other thing, you don't have mental peace, you don't have mental freedom. I took that to heart and reread the book and I was like, oh, I see it's about something different. Fast forward to one day I'm walking home and I'm walking into my building. I live on the fifth floor. And as I walk in, I had something that was important on my mind. And as I walk into my building, I think to myself, should I take the stairs or the elevator? And it's a usual thought. If I take the stairs, it's a little bit of exercise. If I take the elevator, it's a little faster. Uh, it's a little more convenient. What should I do? 
And then I realized I forgot what I was thinking. And I thought that thing was more important than the decision between stairs and the elevator. Pick one and go with it. And since then, I take the stairs. I, know, I don't think about that again. And my mind is more free. So when I started doing burpees, I thought this is a really good exercise. And there's various reasons why I started doing it. I, at, the, at the beginning, I started doing 10 burpees a day. Coincidentally, the guy I started doing this with is the guy who's brewing the beer with his son. So that's a crazy coincidence. <laughs> I started doing 10 a day. And then when, when I was strong enough to do 11, went up to 11, and I kept moving it up. So now I do a little over 50 a day. And every day I know exactly how many, how many I'm going to do because I do the same thing every time. I just have a spreadsheet. I just, once I set the date, it calculates how many I've done. So I don't record each day how many I've done. I just know that I do the same amount every day. That liberates me. A lot of people, I think they treat food and exercise as like horror shows because they're afraid of like, if I eat wrong, if I don't exercise enough, it's all going to be a problem. I figured out what the right amount for me is and then I stick with it. And it's actually to me, liberation and freedom and simplicity that makes the rest of my life much, much easier. It's much easier for me simply to not skip a set of burpees than to, oh, I didn't do enough today. Maybe I should do extra tomorrow. This is much easier. And then I find out that very creative people seem to have that kind of structure. I think of Hemingway typing, writing every day, and lots of people have these habits. It's not just like reading the paper. It's challenging habits that develop skills. Yes, perhaps uh, the moral from this, it's, it's much easier to do in the long term than to deliberate. Um, you've demonstrated that a quality of life when less is more is possible, excuse the cliche, but how do you balance the importance of making personal changes within the context of a system that has proven itself to be so brittle to change and where the magnitude of the industrial engine on scale is so daunting? For example, the fact that veganism is one of the fastest growing environmental or social movements, and yet the amount of animals going to slaughter is still rising almost exponentially despite this. If I look forward to what I expect to happen, I mean, big influences for me were limits to growth. Uh, it seems that we're tracking that pretty well. The research is coming out that we're, we're not on, we're, I mean, we're pretty close to the business as usual projection. I presume a lot of the listeners are familiar with it. If not, I highly recommend that. If I look forward, I see the we're an overshoot. There's a very high prob probability that we're not going to pull out in time. We're going to see some collapse, and not of the economy alone, but of population. This is on, on the scale of billions. It's very likely. And so what's the point in trying to act against this? Well, for me, I draw a lot on... You know, sports is one place where I draw from with the following, is that there were times when I played sports and, and there were times when we played against a team that we were the heavy favorites and we barely won. And there were times that we played against teams that were way above our skill level and we almost won the games. I mean, some of those games where we lost but still played above, our, like learning while playing that particular game. But a game that we lost against a team that we should have beaten, if I didn't give my best that game, or I didn't go to practice. Well, I never missed practice, but if I had skipped practice and then we lost a game that we should have won, that's the sort of thing that would keep me up. Probably in the past year, I've probably woken up from something that happened 20 years ago where I didn't give everything I could. So yes, I prefer to win a game to lose a game. I wish that I lived in a world where it wasn't so polluted, but there are things that are under my control and the things that are outside of my control. The things that are outside of my control, like the past, I can't change. Those are not what I measure my 
well-being, the meaning and purpose of my life come from how much have I given relative to my potential? So I'm not sure what will happen the next decade, the next two, three, four, five decades. But I know that no matter how many times I think about it, the best that I can do is to reach my potential as best that I can. Some of my huge role models and heroes of history would be Nelson Mandela, who was in prison for 27 years. And by the way, did his exercises regularly the entire time. And so he's a role model for me in that regard as well. Not everyone knows he was a boxer when he was younger. And he kept at that routine. I think it was like four days exercise, three days rest. I believe throughout the entire 27 years he was in prison, including the day of his release. He's about to meet presidents and kings and be in front of billions of people. And he writes, he wakes up at 4.30 in the morning, does his exercises, and then come the kings and queens. But then also in terms of how do you live the best life that you can in very difficult situations? I'm not sure if people have read Men's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, but he lived in Auschwitz and chose his outlook on life. And so he wrote about bliss and love, despite being in arguably the worst situation humans have created for each other. And I look at that and I think to myself, if he could, he is a human being or was a human being as I am. And he was able to live in a situation like that and give his best. And if he could, then I could. He had no special abilities that I don't have. Thank you for bringing up that context. You know, no matter how things bleak can get, there's still always stuff we can do right through to the end. Now, you mentioned the P word, and I don't have to bring up population and grovel because I know you brought it up before. In fact, you interviewed one of my colleagues, Jane O'Sullivan, for your podcast, which is what made me contact you, actually. Um, I recall you mentioning in that interview that you're relatively new to population. So I was just wondering if there was a light bulb moment for you, um, how you found Jane's discussion paper on the ageing myth and whether you've lost friends after bringing up the population hmm. bogey in recent years. I mean, there's at least two big points on population. The first was limits to growth and seeing how it's a complex system with lots of different pieces, but population is one of the major parts of it. But I thought, as I think many people do, that the only way to handle it would be the one-child policy and eugenics. To me, that meant a cure worse than, than the disease. And oh, by the way, I want to go a step back. When I was getting my PhD in physics and, and majoring in physics undergrad, I took classes in dynamical systems, and I really loved the beauty of the math. When I read Limits to Growth, I felt like this is exactly how I felt the environment should be treated. I could conceive of it, but they actually did it. And they did the research to put the numbers in. They tested it with lots of different inputs and, and lots of different assumptions. I thought this was exactly what to do. They did it. Wow, they saved me. I would never have done it on my own. So when I read it, it was very comforting to, in the sense of not the results, but the, the approach. But I still couldn't talk about it because if the cure is worse than the disease, I'll take the disease. Then the, the next big change was reading Alan Weissman's book, Countdown, uh, which I highly recommend. Mm -hmm. And in particular, reading about Machai Viravaidya in Thailand. So Machai was... In the 70s, I believe, he lived in Thailand uh, to one Thai parent, one Scottish parent. He was trained as, a, I think, Australia, actually, in economics. And he's out in the countryside of Thailand studying economic stuff. And he had learned that if there's joblessness or inequity, you know, economic problems can all be solved by growth. So he's got these models, and he keeps trying to see how to fix these things. And he, he, growth kept showing that it didn't work. 
And he tried, well, what about degrowth? And it worked. Like that would improve the situation there. And so not knowing well enough to believe that he was wrong, he went out and did what I can only describe as the opposite of the one-child policy. So think the opposite of forced sterilization, the opposite of forced abortion. He would bring condoms to school and have the kids blow up the condoms like balloons and play around with them so that contraception became a normal thing. And he had like Captain Condom, a superhero character, and he would make sure that uh, cab drivers could dispense information on birth control and things like that. It was all available all over the place, all non-coercive, all voluntary. And within, I think, about a decade, they brought the birth rate from something like six, almost maybe almost seven children per couple down to, I think, two or maybe even below replacement level. This resulted in increased stability, increased prosperity, abundance per person, health and longevity. Had I not read it, had this not happened, I would not believe it. And then after reading that, I learned Iran, Costa Rica, uh, Mexico had things like that. And this was not a rare occurrence of one guy. And suddenly I realized I can share a joyful solution. The way I met Machai personally, he's been on my podcast, was through Bill Ryerson. And Bill Ryerson talked about meeting Machai at a big uh, vasectomy event in Thailand. I have to offer an analogy here. Something like 15 years ago, I got LASIK surgery on my eyes. Before that, I wore contacts, but then my eyes would get so red that I, had to, I couldn't even wear contacts. So the next morning I wake up and I have 20-20 vision. And I thought, this is great, I got 20-20 vision. But then I thought, the surgery didn't give me 20-20 vision. I had 20-20 vision with glasses. What the surgery gave me was freedom from glasses. It's a subtle distinction. A vasectomy doesn't give you protection from having children. Not having sex gives you that. What vasectomies give you is joyful sex without having to think of the next 20 years each time. That's great. It's not about not having kids. You can have not kids without a vasectomy. So, and, and you know, have that as a stand for whatever type of contraception you want. Well, I think you've just uh, given Sustainable Population Australia's new marketing statement now. So thank you for that, Josh. <laughs> yeah, my life is about fun, joy. It's, it's really... I'm sharing joy until I enjoyed it, until I had that experience of, of really loving food from the farms nearby and meeting them. And, and then I couldn't share it. I couldn't lead people to do something that I didn't want to do. And when I hear people talking about all the science and all the facts and stuff, I'm like, that's great, but that's not going to influence anybody. I mean, you can tell smokers about lung disease. You can tell drinkers about liver disease. That's not going to change your behavior. Give them role models, support, understanding, a vision of a, of a better future. That's what, that's leadership. That's what was missing. And it kills me to hear people who know the science backward and forward and then tell people the science with the hopes and they want other people to change when they're doing something that for decades, generations has not worked. We have to change ourselves if we expect others to change. If we keep just saying, this is what we have to do, therefore you must do it. People will keep digging their heels and responding, no, Stop telling me what to do. If I keep trying to change you and I feel like I'm needy, I need you to change, then someone who's not needy is gonna look at me and say, why would I wanna be like you? Being right is really annoying. <laughs> yes. Even if you are right and being infallible makes people wanna poke holes at you. Mm. And you know, I really should share more of the disasters that I've had. I mean, I should tell more about the, the six months of bland food that I had. Now I'd love to invite people over. When, when you're in New York, come by. 
and I'll make you some of my famous no packaging vegans too. But there was a time when I was so scared to show people what I was making because it, I, it was terrible. It really tasted bad, but it was no packaging. So, but then little by little, I would mix stuff in, and find out what, what vegetables worked with what other vegetables and things like that. And now it's really good. And I think a lot of vegan food has been on that journey of that kind of collective thing that we had. Oh, vegan food can't have flavour in it. And now we're realising that it can. But um, I'm curious um, how you came across Jane O'Sullivan's paper, Silver Tsunami or Silver Lining, and um, what you thought of it. I mean, you obviously liked it enough to interview Jane. but Yeah, where did I get it from? Um, I mean, definitely there's uh, negative population growth and there's population media centre one of these places must have posted about it or emailed about it. And then I read it and it was exactly what I like to read as the geek, as information of like, there's all these myths about population growth and how, you know, we need it to grow for the economy. And, and again, someone did the research that I felt very important. Now, I, I don't confuse it with leadership. It's, it's, it's information that's important, but I don't think anyone's going to read that and think, oh, now... I'm going to have fewer kids as a result of that. I think it's information that's useful for that people who then use it to lead others. I, I shouldn't say no one. I mean, some people will read it and think that's the difference I was looking for. Separately, I think we also need to convert that into useful leadership. And speaking of population, because it's, you know, one of my favorite topics, so there are all these graphs now that show having one less child makes so much more of a difference to one's personal carbon footprint than a host of lifestyle changes. And admittedly, sometimes when I see those graphs, I am tempted to feel that since I'm child-free anyway, that anything else I do is more or less academic. Um, but beyond the temptation, what is your perspective on the population versus consumption versus inequality debate? Are these mutually exclusive or different sides on the same coin? A big influence on me is uh, a guy named W. Edwards Deming. I don't know if people know him there, but he was... He was one of the major forces behind Japan post-war going from a, a complete, you know, bombed out nation into an industrial powerhouse serving the world. And there's a phrase that I, I don't know if I got it from him, but certainly he reinforced it, which is systemic change begins with personal transformation. If I try to figure out which is the most important thing to do, should I have fewer kids? Should I not fly? Should I be vegan? All of these things are what I do. The most valuable thing I can do is to lead others, to learn, and if I don't have the skills, to learn the skills to influence others, because then I can multiply the effect. My not having children is nothing compared to my influencing 10 other people, all of, which, all of whom don't have, have one less child. And if, the, if I can teach them to teach others, now we get some viral growth. That's much more effective. So leading others is the most effective thing I believe that people can do. And to lead others, we must lead ourselves. It's virtually impossible to lead other people to do something that we ourselves do the opposite of. So we have to do all those things anyway, which is, you know, carpool and not fly so much and, you know, have fewer kids. But the reason for doing them, one, I believe that everyone will find that improves their life. That's certainly been the case for me, despite the horror show that we think it's going to be. That's just the values of our system not able to handle values of a different system, but that other system can work just fine. And that other system doesn't require an infinite earth, which we don't have. The other is it enables us to find out what it takes to do these things. If I want to stop eating meat, the challenge is not don't eat meat, done. What do you do when you're at home and your mom cooks your hamburger and she's going to feel hurt 
if you don't do it? What do you do when you're out with your friends and they say, let's go to this restaurant and the restaurant doesn't have anything. And what do you do when you have some craving? Those are the challenges. And only by doing them can you find them out. And it's very difficult to lead someone to do something when the challenges that they face, you have never faced yourself. So it's an education that happens to be joyful. Despite, yes, there's some challenge at the beginning, but my swimming upstream makes it so that others will feel like they're swimming downstream. And then it becomes feeling swimming downstream for me as well. Then I can lead others. And then I can make a much bigger change than I could on my own. It also gives you credibility. So I don't see them as two separate things at all. I cannot change others. I can't change systems if I don't change myself. The fastest, most effective way to influence government is through influencing people around me and my, starting with myself. If I have to wait for government's like the last thing to change. People who say, oh, we got to get governments and corporations to change. That's like saying to run a marathon, you must cross the finish line. Yes, yes, yes. There's a lot of steps before that. And don't expect to finish that marathon if you don't run all the way there. When you do these things yourself, you, when I do, have done these things myself, I've learned to enjoy them. I, I, I'm always going to keep coming back to how much I enjoy it. I'm so damn happy. <laughs> <laughs> you look very happy. You look very happy. You sound happy. So When I talked about the weird things that I do sometimes, the listeners can't see this, but I've chosen not to put the lights on. So it's nighttime here, it's daytime there. They can't see that. Like I'm looking at myself on the screen and I'm in the dark. It looks like out of... Um, Blair Witch Project. <laughs> but I'm also, because I just read an article, I, I just found out someone who's living, she's got a target living in England of one ton carbon dioxide emission per year. Oh, wow. And that's about where I am. One, one of the online calculators says I'm at 0.8. Another one says I'm at 2.4. Whatever it is, it's well below the US average. It's well, it's well below the world average. Mm. And there's more that I can do. Like I, Every time I get somewhere, there's more role models. So anyway, because I was contacting her for the first time, and she was telling me about others, I felt like, oh, wow, this is great. I found someone else doing what I'm doing and have enjoyed doing it. And so I'm a little, con a little more conscious than usual because she was writing up on her blog of like, if she walks somewhere, how, like, how many grams of, of carbon dioxide emission it is, and if she rides a bike, how much it is, and if she drives, how much it is. And I was thinking, oh, you know, I'll not turn on the light right now. So I look weird. So what? <laughs> No, from where I'm sitting, it sounds like we're having a conversation over the campfire, maybe with a bit of a UFO in the background <laughs> where, yeah. where one of the outside lights are. Um, this is a podcast about post-growth, so let's tie this all together with a look at the broader picture of Limits of Growth. What has been your journey towards the realisation that scaling back on one of these core issues and that the old stalwarts of green technology and human cleverness won't keep this party running indefinitely. And I know you've touched on this, but let's just bring it all together. Um, why not green growth? Nice fantasy. Uh, no evidence of it, of it working. I mean, my big model there is the, I mean, there's many, but the, the big one that I use as the example, because it was the first one that I, it really hit me with, was the when James Watt invented the steam engine. I'm sorry, he, when he invented his steam engine. It was not the first steam engine. It was a huge advance in efficiency. Rarely does engineering see such efficiency gains. And everybody thought coal use would go down because it's so much more efficient, but coal use went up. It went up because it became cheaper to operate. So more people used more steam engines for more things. And it, so we put it on wheels and you get a locomotive, you put it on a boat, you get a steamboat, put it in a factory, you get a, an automatic loom and then automatic factory. And fast forward, you get internal combustion engines, you get automobiles, you get airplanes, you get a world today. Now, if we didn't, if there was no pollution coming out of it, that might not be such a problem. I mean, we'd run out of it, but I think the, the bigger issue is all the pollution. Well, they're both big issues. Gains in efficiency 
if you ask an economist, they're like, well, we have to study whether the, the rebound effects are bigger than the, it's clear that the pollution is coming from the, these efficient things. We're more efficient than ever and we're polluting more than ever. And Uber was supposed to decrease congestion and decrease miles driven, but it's increased it. And cell phones and computers, ENIAC was horribly inefficient. I mean, my cell phone is like infinitely, I don't know, billions of times more efficient than ENIAC was, the first computer. That thing dimmed the city and we're polluting more than ever. It's not obvious that this stuff is a net improvement to our lives. Efficiency in a finite world with growth leads to scarcity. This is no mystery. And growth on its own means always wanting what you don't have. It means craving. It means never satisfied. That is not a life that I want to live. And these economists, how are we going to do it? If you think you have to solve every problem before you do it, you're never going to get started. I mean, we, no one, Adam Smith came after the growth stuff happened, not before. And when we move to degrowth, then the economists will start realizing, oh, oh it turns out it works. I, I didn't mention that when I had the idea to go for a week without packaged food, there was a six month period from when I had the idea to when I implemented it. And in that six months, I did what school taught me to do, which was to analyze and to plan and to figure out what will I do at day one and day two and day three. So every time I thought, I got to do something. This is really important. I got to act. Something inside me, I'm like full of anxiety. And then I think, okay, what do I do day one, day two, day three? And then I'd never get to day seven. I just start, my mind would be filled with all this, like, what do I do, what do I do? And then I'd feel like, okay, I'm doing something. And that feeling of like anxiety would go away. And then I'd stop and I'd go back to whatever I was doing before the anxiety hit. And I wouldn't act. Going to the store that time made me feel inadequate and helpless. And, but it also got me it, it solved the problem. I think of the movie Martian. The Martian is, I don't know if people saw it, but Matt Damon plays his character. He's on Mars and there's like a windstorm and blows a hole in his safety suit and he's losing oxygen and he's got to patch up the suit immediately because, right, he's going to lose his oxygen. He's going to die. Now he's safe for a couple minutes. He's got to get back to the base. Okay, he gets back to the base. Now he's, but he, his companions have died, so it's just him. So now he's got to secure himself and the, he secures the base and that gives him a couple days, but then he's got to get food. That, okay, so he plants potatoes. That'll get him a couple months. Now he's got to get to some ship that'll get him off the, off the planet. So now he's got a project that it will take several months to figure out. And at each stage, he figures out what it takes to get to the next stage. We live in a world in which everybody's saying to someone who's got the hole in the suit, saying, why bother patching the hole in the suit if you don't know how to get all the way to Earth? Sometimes you have to solve mm. problems as they come. And then the theorists can come later and figure out what the theory was. But I can guarantee you this, that, okay, here's what we know. There are plenty of societies and cultures of human, humans that have lived in various different places where they've lived for hundreds of thousands of years, stably, without growing. And I mean, I th I'm thinking of the San Bushmen in Southern Africa, because I read this book, uh, a couple of books by a, an author, James Sussman, which I highly recommend. So he had Affluence Without Abundance and a recent one called Work. And they live for something like 200,000 years. And we don't know the details of what their culture was like. We don't know if it was violent or not violent or whatever, but we know that over 200,000 years, there, were, there are gonna be climate changes and the species that are around are gonna change in lots of different ways. They were not on the verge of starvation. They're actually living very resiliently. In one one thousandth that time, we went from the industrial revolution into where people seriously talk about we may be extinct. Now, are we gonna reach extinction? I don't know, that's a pretty tall order. 
but huge collapse is very possible. So contrast these two societies and plenty of others. Pick an island in the South Pacific and you can have lots of cases of, of people or Hawaii where people live for centuries, stably with abundance per person. And what that means is that humans can live that way. It's not like a burden to live that way. Mm. So there's a, a very rosy picture that we could live. And if we take lessons from Machai and go to 1.5 children per couple for a few generations, we can reach a below, uh, so we're not in overshoot. So to be at like, the numbers to me look like two, maybe three billion people. And we can reach that level peacefully as we have done in different cultures and then live there stably. It's a matter of leadership to get there, I believe. Techno some technology can help, but we have to change our values. That's the domain of leadership. Yeah, so that leads me to um, this endless growth in a finite planet story. It's just that a story. It's a consensus reality that's derived from the ways in which um, industrialized humans perceive the world and each other. Do you think there is something in human psychology or consciousness that needs to shift in order for us not repeating the same mistakes if we manage to crawl out of this mess. So not, for example, replacing neoliberalism with um, feudalism or communism or despotism, you know, the whole I'm right, you're wrong, blah, blah, blah thing that we tend to do. My book, uh, so I've, I've, the book is likely to get a publisher very soon and probably come out in about a year. And it talks about a lot of stories that I think are, I mean, there are some stories about my life, people on my podcast, uh, Machai and, and W.R. Deming, but there's also a vision for how, what the world is today. That's not, you know, I think I've, I've described limits to growth, but without using math and without saying, here's how systems work by talking about living systems and populations that have overgrown and collapsed in ways that even the most, uh, in America, conservatives, evangelicals tend to be the, where the most resistance comes from in ways that would, I think would make sense to them. And to get people to embrace new values has been done. Sometimes it happens because it's World War II and it's Hitler, right? That's gonna get people to mobilize pretty quickly. To lead people to want to change, it takes a lot of going to where they are, but people can do it. And stewardship is something that, you know, in America, evangelicals and conservatives, it's very important to them. And if I talk to them, I spoke today with a guy on my podcast. So he's a PhD student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he and I were talking about our values where stewardship comes into play. And it wasn't a question of what's the science, but I led him through to doing something on the environment. And I have, I've had Trump supporters. I've had military people people who might describe themselves as environmentalists or be described as environmentalists would say, oh, they're the enemy, we gotta beat them. I have to say that I've learned from them some things that I thought I knew on the science, mm. but if I'm not fallible and I'm not listening, then they're not fallible and they're not listening. I presume that most people listening to this are people who have a sense that we know the science, it's, we know the predictions and we gotta convince others I don't know how many people I can influence, but I know that I can change myself. And if I'm not being effective, if I'm going around saying, look, I know the science and you don't, I'm right, you're wrong, do what I say. If there's any hint of that, 
That's totally ineffective. It's counterproductive. It's, it, it gets people to dig in their heels. So it's not answering the question that you asked, but I think it's what we who are in this community of people who see that there's an issue, what can we do to, I would say, to learn the social and emotional skills of influencing and leading others so that they embrace what we share with them so that they want to change. And it is not facts and figures and doom and gloom and giving instruction. It kills me when I hear scientists saying, I got to get to the senators to get this vote because they, the people don't understand it. And that's subverting democracy. That's not my strategy. It engenders people with more power getting to the senators first. And so far, oil has had the money and the influence. It's, it's ineffective. And I think you raise a very good point in reaching out to people where they are. Um, so much that I see of activism these days and people getting onto uh, Facebook on common interests, activism, and arguing with each other over diminishing points of difference. And there's this sense of being active, but really you're just having these protracted debates <laughs> with people mm -hmm. that should be on the same page and um, meanwhile you know the stockbrokers aren't doing anything different are they they're just they're, they're still laughing all the way to the bank whilst uh, we bicker and argue with each other and um, that's always seemed pretty odd behavior to me but anyway <laughs> so um, yeah give us a little snapshot of your vision of a post-growth world and what a day-to-day -day life of a post-growth podcast listener might look like. Uh, would we still be able to podcast, for example, or would we still be uh, too busy trying to plant potatoes with Matt Damon? You know, what, what would it be? <laughs> I want to comment on something you said also, that the people debating with each other on social media, you know, not long ago there was an election for president in the United States, and uh, my father lives in Pennsylvania, which is a swing state, and so votes there counted for a lot. And he was very um, not pro-Trump, the opposite of pro-Trump. And he was concerned about it. And I said, if you want to influence the election, you're in a, an important place. You could talk to people. He's talking to all these people, but they're all people who agree with him who are already going to vote. <laughs> so he's not actually changing the result. I said, you got to talk to people who would, disagree, who, who would vote for Trump and either influence them to change their vote or at least not vote. You got to talk to the people who disagree with you. And he wouldn't do it. He refused to do it. But that's... To me, on the environment, the playing field of the environment, to me, is the hearts and minds of conservatives, evangelicals, and, and people in the U.S. who are, I think the U.S. is one of the, Australia, sorry, you guys got it too, of people who are very pro-oil and growth and things like that, and fossil fuels. I guess for you, it would be more yes. coal. And that's who we got to engage. Not to tell them they're wrong, but to lead. Mm. So that's listening, supporting, understanding, making them feel understood befriending, talking in their, in their language, in their terms, not to convince, not to win, mm -hmm. but to lead, which is I, leading. Uh, I should clarify that leadership to me doesn't mean convincing. It doesn't mean using authority or force or coercion. For me, it's behaving in communicating in ways to make them feel comfortable sharing what they care about and connecting what they care about to something that would achieve a common goal. In our case, clean air, clean water, clean land, degrowth in population through non-coercive peaceful means. So now I forgot the question I was supposed to answer. If we simply level off at 7.9 billion or 10 billion, that's way above sustainable. So that's slowly degrading Earth's ability to sustain life and there'd eventually be collapse. So I can only imagine this 
when we're down to 2 billion, maybe 3 billion people. So say we've lived for a few generations of 1.5 children per couple globally, right? This is not just in places of high growth today. It's everywhere because, you know, the places of high consumption, the US, China, these are the places where, well, everywhere is actually where we could use degrowth through peaceful nonviolent means, no forced abortion or forced sterilization, things like that. So now when we're down to 2 billion people, let's just say, oh man, I do this exercise, exercise to the reader, to the Mm -hmm. listener. Next time you're stuck in traffic, next time you're waiting in line someplace, imagine a world with 2 billion people. For those out there thinking, oh, well, we need geniuses. We need more people to get more geniuses. 2 billion was, we hit that somewhere like early 19th century, early 1900s. Okay, we got Einstein. We had uh, Mozart and Shakespeare. We had Buddha and Jesus at like a couple hundred million. We had Aristotle. So we're going to have all kinds of culture, all kinds of, of wonderful discoveries and things like that, but more abundance per person. At that point, I don't think the physics is going to allow flights across the Pacific because battery powered planes, I don't think can quite make it that far. But air conditioning, I think we'll have, you know, we're going to have the internet. We're gonna, I think we're going to live like we do today, mostly, but without the flying so much, it's not, see, one flight brings you to someone far away, but flying in general leads us to live far away from people to where we need to fly to see them again. So I would imagine probably small communities will reform again. In America, there'll be more small towns. People will know their farmers more, they'll cook more at home. But if we want to go to lower population, then we could have more wasteful things because the earth Mm. does regenerate. I mean, if we're producing like, uh, PFOAs and, and PCBs and stuff that doesn't break down, that's trouble. So we can't do things like that. We can't make stuff that nature doesn't know how to process. But if we make, I guess we wouldn't burn fossil fuels, but say we grew biofuels and we want to, somehow we could make ethanol flying airplanes. We could do that. So I don't see the value in living close to the limit. I see a lot of benefit from living well below the limit so that if we have a shock to the system. People who run factories know if you run at peak efficiency, if there's a problem with any machine anywhere, you, the whole, you gotta bring the whole thing down. So you have an extra stock. So if one machine goes down, you can draw, you can use it. You can go from stock and then re- replenish it when the, during maintenance time. So if our population, say the, say the maximum is 3 billion and we're living at 2.9 billion, it's kind of tight. But if we live at 2 billion, now we've got a lot of leeway to do lots of different things. So living well below the limit you can have lots of people and a great uh, standard of living. In terms of health and longevity, pre-agriculture, people, if you made it out of childhood, and we, we, have, we can definitely keep the science and medicine to, to keep up childhood health. But before agriculture, if you made it through childhood, you'd make it to 60. After agriculture, then it dropped down to like 30 would be old age, but we can live long life and have modern medicine with a population of 2 billion people. Uh, That's a great vision too. And I've always thought like with less people, there's more of a a margin of error. So, you know, if there are societies that go through a period of consuming a bit more, it's not going to be at the expense of a whole planet. We're coming to the end now, but just one of the curiosities I've had in my 
Hey, when you're talking about imagining a people with less people, how do you balance that with living in Manhattan? I mean, for example, I can uh, hear the uh, the traffic in the evening just outside the window and that classic, you know, Manhattan beeping of the horns. And, uh-huh. um, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I'm just curious, you know, you're in one of the densest populated parts of the world. Does that, did, did you like the proximity of people or does it drive you nuts or, or a bit of both? There's or? a video... A video I saw of a bunch of places, a bunch of families in New Zealand that were living more sustainably. They interviewed one of them and they showed, I might be mixing up a couple of different families, but they showed they'd grown in their yard, a, I think they called it an edible forest. So they mostly planted trees and plants that were edible. And if I remember right, it was that couple. And the guy said, sometimes people say, why don't you go live in the forest? What they said was, this place was actually polluted and we built it into a green. Anyone can go to a place that's not polluted and live there, but that's not restoring. That's not regenerating. They wanted to be where the problem was to fix the problem. Mm. And also historically people would go to a place, then they would overpopulate it, pave it over, and then someone would say, oh, it's too much. I'm going to go live over there. And then repeat the cycle. And there's no, no place left to go now. I mean, maybe there's a couple of places we could live solo, but vanishingly few. I want to be where the problem is because I, wa- I want to be where I can make the biggest delta, where I can change the most. I think the United States is one of the major places where the pollution is happening, where the problems are happening. And I think New York City is one of the places where I can have the most influence. So, yeah, there are plenty of places I could go where it would be quieter and more calm. Uh, I mean, there's certainly plenty of culture here that I love. And I love going out and foraging and picking berries. I was picking berries in Manhattan earlier today. And there, mm. there's some still, I can't call it wildlife, but there's still nature to be had here. But not nearly as much as there could be elsewhere. But the opportunity to influence a culture that could, I believe, that will benefit that when people go through the influence, they'll be like, oh my God, I wish we had changed earlier. That's where I want to be. Well, Joshua, thank you so much for being on Post Growth Australia podcasts and sharing your uh, infinite wisdom. I was, I was very inspired by that. Um, if people would like to follow the great work that you do, what can they do and where can they go and how can they say hello? Joshuaspodek.com is where everything is. And in the upper right corner, so I, I blog every day. In the upper right corner is, you'll see a link for the podcast. You'll also see a link for Contact Connect. You'll also see a link, see a link to my three TEDx talks. My social media is mainly uh, Twitter, so it's at Spodek. And uh, there's books. And if you have questions, they can contact me uh, through Contact Connect up there in the upper right corner. I think that's it. I mean, I would start with the TEDx Talks and listen to a bunch of the podcast episodes. I really love the TEDx Talks, by the way. I found them so inspiring. So I really encourage um, uh, everyone to have a look at those. Thank you, Joshua. The honour has been all mine. Then the pleasure has been all mine. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Post Growth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss, and we just spoke with Joshua Spodek, TEDx talker, world-class author, and host of award-winning podcast, This Sustainable Life. In case I hadn't made this startlingly obvious by now, I found Joshua as hugely inspiring in person as his pedigree implies, and his dedication to the greater cause is staggering. When we recorded the interview, it was night in New York City and Joshua had turned out all the lights. I could barely see him in the dark. This is just one example of the extent to which he takes his dedication. His repeat experiences of taking on a challenge of reducing his consumption choices, finding this initially challenging, but then adjusting to the change and finding a richer life is hope for us all. But it had me reflecting on some of my experiences of moving against the grain, finding some success in some areas, but also a few times that it felt like society was biting back and putting me back in my place. Perhaps I'd need to do a leadership course after all. But it also got me thinking about whether different life circumstances affect the capacity to go through the change in the first place and cope with the many speed bumps and adjustments that come during the start. I couldn't imagine making half the life choices I've made if I was supporting a young family, for example, and I'm not nearly as hardcore as Joshua is. In retrospect, I wish I had raised this with Joshua, so he's hoping he comes back one day for the pithy discussion round two. So what do you think of this episode and season three at this early stage? How are you finding PGAP generally? Do you like the new updated artwork? Or do you think I'm sliding down a slippery slope of narcissism with my face everywhere? One listener wrote a really lovely thing to PGAP on the contact form during season two, which I'd like to share with you all. It goes, <clears throat> I have great appreciation for the PGAP podcast. It has introduced me to great minds, new conversations, and some interesting bodies of work. PGAP has also led me down a rabbit hole or two, which I have thoroughly enjoyed. Well, a big thank you and schmucks to this lovely listener and for entrusting PGAP down those rabbit holes. Would you like to be a lovely listener as well? Contact PGAP on the contact form and let your thoughts and opinions known to me. Rate and review PGAP on Apple Podcasts. Spread the PGAP gospel far and wide to your family, your friends, and most importantly, the most dire of your enemies and arch nemesi. Think Joshua started this season on a high and it's all crash and burn from here? Think again, Daddy-O. A stellar high-quality rotation of guests are guaranteed to serenade your ears for the next six or so months. This is a brand PGAP guarantee or your money back guaranteed. Until then, folks. Until then. <laughs>